so good to be with you all on such a special day. Um, there's just a, a buzz and an energy in my world whenever we think about baptism, and I hope it is for you too. I've been excited about this not only all week, but for weeks now, um, and excited to see those stepping into their faith, uh, excited for the work of God that is present at baptism as Jesus commanded us to do this. Excited about all saints and what today means that we're part of a bigger story than ourselves. It's a beautiful thing. Now, when we say we're part of a story that's bigger than ourselves, it's bigger than those in this room and just the church that worships together. Bigger than the churches who worship like we do and in our tradition. We're part of the family of God. Baptist, Methodist, Episcopal, Roman Catholic, Orthodox, Presbyterian, Nazarene, Pentecostal, and it goes on and on and on. Today, Christians gather all around the world, from the vibrant church in South Korea and Nigeria, to the underground church in China, to the remnant church in Iraq, to the faithful church in France, and those worshiping today in conflict-laden Palestine. Our faith is not limited by language or by culture. Not only that, Christians are part of a story that stretches throughout time, not only throughout space, throughout time, as we lift our voices as part of a story of worshipers throughout the generations. Now, this parish, this congregation, has a special situation. People have been worshiping in this building for generations. Every time I pull into the parking lot, I'm reminded that those of us who will gather this morning are not the first ones to gather here. And with this understanding comes humility. Our host church upstairs right now is from a different tradition, Christian tradition, and they're gathering as we speak. We pass by them in the hallways. We interact with worshipers from their congregation every morning. We hear their music, or at least you will probably in a little bit. They hear our music. I hear about that regularly. We may not emphasize the same things. We may not agree on the same things. Both churches understand this, and yet we've chosen to inhabit space together. Why would we do that? Because these differences do not define the church. We are bound together by God's story. And as we gather, we honor God's faithfulness to them and the way that they have reflected God's faithfulness. This church, that church, is and are a garden of the resurrection in place and in time. So to be part of the communion of saints is to say there is something deeper than cultural identity that binds us together. Your politics, your ethnicity, your socioeconomic status, your job, all may have something to say about you, but they do not have the final say. All of those identities must only find their place among your greater identity, child of God. It is Jesus who defines us. In our reading from Revelation, we're given this large-scale, big vision of the church. We see this vision given to John of diversity within the family of God. John says of the vision that there's a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, from all tribes and people and languages, standing before the throne and before the, the lamb, robed in white with palm branches in their hand. Now remember that this was the promise to Abraham, that he would be the father of many nations. And this has always been the calling of God's people, that diverse nations would come from the family of Abraham. So therefore, the people of God are never to be a homogenous, same group of people. We are diverse people, bound together by the creator God and the lamb, 
by the Spirit. Once, many years ago, before I started this church, I played golf with a guy who attended a different church from mine, and he was just extolling his church community, which is good. I like to hear about people's good experiences with church, but he said something that made me cringe. He said, you know what I like about our church? Everyone is just like me. In his case, he said, suburban, 2.5 kids, they're all just like me. So I was trying to figure out how everybody has 2.5 kids, but anyway, the averaging. But it made me cringe, right? Homogeneity is never the goal, and that's not the result of the gospel. The communion of the saints is a diverse tapestry of people bound together, not by life stage or culture or affinity, but by the good news of Jesus. In his vision, John is preparing the church for coming persecution, and he's reminding them of the reality of heaven that stands against what they're about to face. So basically, no matter what they face, the creator God and the lamb have already won the victory. Now, there's a few things we hear from this story, and I want specifically our our candidates to hear this today. First, we're part of a bigger story than what we see. This story that you're stepping into is bigger than the story that even that you see now. The book of Revelation is interesting. It plays around with time, so it jumps to and fro. So you get the past and the future and the present, and that's because it's not really a historical narrative. It's a vision. That can be super frustrating when you read it because we're left asking, okay, is this something, something that's happening now, or is this something that's going to happen? How does all that work? And the answer is yes. We can trust that we are in some way, even now, we are part of this people dressed in white, that this is our identity and our reality. And yet someday we will see that reality in fullness. Second, you are defined by Christ's victory over sin and death. The multitudes are carrying palm branches. That's a sign of victory. They're shouting out their delight and their praise and their thanks to God and to the lamb. And they say, salvation belongs to our God who is seated on the throne and to the lamb. So Christ's resurrection means death doesn't have the final word. And that means all the other things we're afraid of in life, they don't have the final word either. The multitudes sing blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might. All these things be to our God forever and forever. Each week we sing this old song, the doxology, uh, praise God from whom all blessings flow. We'll sing it in a little bit. But we believe in one God. Everything good comes from the one God. That means there's no other gods. In other words, our security, our ability to produce wealth, our achievement, our attractiveness, none of those are the source of our blessings. All blessings come from God. Now, the reason why these people are dressed in white is not because they live perfectly pure lives, but because they have a new identity. They're clothed in Christ's death and resurrection. They've been rescued from slavery to sin, from the false stories that lead nowhere. And then the third thing from this Revelation reading is we are defined by God's presence with us in the midst of pain. Verse 15 says, God will shelter them with his presence. That means literally he will pitch a tent over them. That as he pitched his tent in the midst of the Israelites in the wilderness, so God is with us. God is present with his people. And our God, this is so critical, our God is not just a conquering hero. Of course, he is. Christ's death and resurrection is a conquering story. But he's also the one who is the suffering servant, 
who's with us, who sits with us and suffers with us. So somehow John wants us to see that those who are suffering experience God's new world, God's restored new world in some ways even now, even if we don't experience it in fullness. Why? Because God is with them. In our epistle reading, John begins by, it's just three little verses, and he says, see what love the Father has given us, that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. Notice he begins with love. John is writing to a small, early church community, okay? The amount of Christians at this time in this community were pretty small. And it may have become a challenge for them at this time to love one another. We kind of know how that works. In community, it can be challenging to love one another. So it's possible that they get the big concepts. They celebrate salvation. They know the story of Jesus. They highly value spiritual things. But they're struggling with the reality of loving each other in their everyday lives, with the everyday issues of just getting along together. And we will struggle with that today. Often in church life, our challenge is not with intellectual belief, though sometimes it is. It's not with the narrative of the Bible, though sometimes it is. Often our struggle is what to do in the midst of everyday conflict, hurts, disconnection, and misunderstandings. And then I think we can extrapolate this to our cultural arguments today, that we struggle to love the one who stands in opposition to my cultural team. But God is really present with us. That's what we trust in, transforming us in everyday life because Jesus is human as well as God. And there is nothing too dark or too difficult that he does not experience with us. God's love leads us to a new identity. So it says here that Jesus opened the door for us to be called children of God. And that's an amazing thing. We probably should just sit with this for a long time. The reality, you are a child of God. For the Christian, this is what you are. This is who you are, even if you can't see it. You are God's children. Around here, we often call that our baptismal identity. Eugene Peterson says, baptism redefines our life as God's gift to be lived in the presence and within the operations of God. Listen to this part. Our birth certificate is a record of our biological birth. Baptism is a record of God's eternal claim on us. When we take that claim with full seriousness, we live out a far more comprehensive definition, son or daughter of God. Today, we have three young men who will be plunged into the waters of baptism. Today, as we celebrate baptism, it's an opportunity for all of the baptized to reflect on our baptismal identity. Some of you were baptized as babies. You have no memory of it. And yet, it happened. Some of you were baptized in your church after going through a class or in response to a spontaneous altar call. Some of you were baptized in youth camp or in college ministry. No matter when or where it happened, it happened. You stepped into this freedom. And we're going to celebrate that today. Not just their baptism, but this one baptism that we are part of. We're going to celebrate that in a fun way, so stay tuned. And for those who have yet to take a step of baptism, may today be a day of anticipation for you. God's love has already embraced you. He's taken you on a journey. 
He's given you a family to walk beside you. Today, you look forward. In our world, we're so often tempted to forget that identity. We're defined by so many other things, by what we've achieved or not achieved, by our personality quirks, by our bank account. The faith you are not, says you are not primarily defined by these things. Something has already happened through the resurrection of Jesus. And this is why it's important that we renew our baptismal covenant. In our community, we don't rebaptize. So if you've been baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we don't do rebaptism because we honor that first baptism that was once for all. But the truth is, even the baptized, we often don't feel like a child of God. And our life doesn't often reflect that reality. We experience our own brokenness and limitations and disordered behaviors. The pastor who's writing this letter challenges the church to remember that the truth about our identity is no less true, even when it's confusing. It's been assured, and we will one day see it in fullness. So it is important to declare who we are and whose we are. So in addition to those baptized today, Chandler Warwick will be renewing his baptismal covenant today. And as he does this, all of us are called to reflect and to remember who we are and whose we are. Christians celebrate a glorious future ahead, and we're called to live that glorious future now in the present. This is really what it means to live Christian virtue, to live rightly. We know that God's new world is built on faith, hope, and love, and we're invited to cultivate that virtue in the new world. It's like this. It's like if you're preparing to go to a foreign country, you would want to begin to learn the language so you could live fully into that new world. As we learn the language of Christian virtue, even if it feels counterintuitive in our world, we're learning to live into God's new world that's already broken in now. In our gospel reading, Jesus proclaims the good news of the kingdom. It can be really easy when we read these statements from Jesus to turn them into moral principles, to internalize this as a list of commands to do better. So we read, blessed are the poor in spirit, and we think, gosh, I really need to be more poor in spirit, whatever that means. Blessed are the meek. Oh, gosh, I just need to work on my meekness, my humility. But notice this passage is prescriptive, or not prescriptive, it's descriptive. So it's not a prescription, do this, it's describing. Jesus doesn't say, be more merciful. He says, blessed are the merciful. In a sense, these beatitudes is what they're called, are a description of the saints, a particular way of being in the world that characterizes those who are called Christians. That doesn't mean that Christians or the saints always live this way, (laughs) far from it. It doesn't mean we're perfect according to the standard of the beatitudes, It means this is the kind of life we've stepped into. This is Jesus's manifesto. It's the description of what the world, the new world looks like. So Jesus says this kingdom is good news for those who know they need God, who know they're at the end of their rope, for those who have grieved and experienced loss, those who are content with who they are, those who hunger and thirst for God, who long to taste and see that he is good. But you may have noticed that our world does not come predisposed to meekness or righteousness or humility, does it? Those who mourn are often left uncomforted. The meek do not inherit the earth. 
Those who long for justice often die still longing for it. In fact, in the New Testament, Christians are called exiles or resident aliens. We have this weird responsibility. We're we're not to engage our nation as tourists or our city as tourists. We're part of the fabric of this city, Christians are. We're supposed to be seeking the welfare and shalom and flourishing of the place in which we live. And yet, there's also a sense that we're ambassadors from a whole different kingdom. We represent a different kind of rule and reign in the world. So to trust in God, to say you need more than just yourself for self-sufficiency, to come with empty hands, to recognize your own dependency, that's odd in this world. But the kingdom of God is built on dependency, built on on recognizing your need for God. Notice at the end of the Revelation reading, there's a promise that God will wipe every tear from their eyes. Our world today sits in the middle of incredible brokenness, especially in the wake of multiple wars. And in such a world, the church must be those, the baptized people of God must be those who grieve with those who grieve. We must be those who stand in solidarity with Christians who face persecution today and stand in solidarity with all of our fellow humans who are crying tears of loss and fear and desperation. Now, if you've tuned out up to this point, I want you to hear this, okay? So listen, please. Rowan Williams, who is this former Archbishop of Canterbury, he says this powerful thing. He says, Christians will be found in the neighborhood of Jesus, but Jesus is found in the neighborhood of human confusion and suffering defenselessly alongside those in need. If being baptized is being led to where Jesus is, then being baptized is being led towards the chaos and neediness of a humanity that has forgotten its own destiny. Christians are to stand in the midst of need and pain and hurt in the world. But as we do so, we hear a word of hope. There will be a day when all will be right. And we see glimpses of that hope even now. To be baptized is to become more fully human, if you can believe that. To recover who humanity has always been called and meant to be. The old world in which we live, those who long for justice just go on longing. But in God's new world, there is justice. The world is made right. In the old world, those who are wronged lash out. Peacemaking so often seems like a futile effort. Peace sometimes in our world is experienced for a period of time, but it seems like the human heart is just bent towards war. But in stark contrast, in God's new world, it's the peacemakers who are God's children. Sometimes in our thirst for justice, we respond with violence. But Jesus chose a different pattern. In this world, those who are persecuted for the sake of Christ often don't see relief. There are so many people who are persecuted for their faith around the world. And Jesus spoke these words in the first century, and there would be many, many martyrs to come after that. But Jesus acknowledges that anytime someone proclaims the rule and reign of God, there's going to be opposition to that because our world is broken. But, he says, there is something on the other side of suffering, and that suffering is not in vain. This is incredibly difficult. Jesus intentionally suffered the pain of the world. 
He does this. He suffers with us, not in a way that's codependent, because codependency keeps things in the dark. To suffer for someone because you need them to like you or you really need that, that's not true sacrifice. That's not what happens at the cross. Instead, God chose and chooses to love us, not out of neediness, but simply out of his love. This love is what God's kingdom will look like when it comes in fullness, and it's what it looks like when we see his kingdom at work now. Jesus is not predicting his kingdom. Hey, someday this is all going to happen. He's proclaiming it. He's saying it's here and it's happening right now, and we're invited to look for it and to join it. So as I close here today, we've heard the good news of our defining reality our identity in Christ. We heard it the large scale, 30,000 foot view and revelation of people from every nation and tribe and language and time covered in Christ, waving palm branches, worshiping and ascribing all things to God. You are part of that people today. And those who are being baptized, this is the family you now join. We've also heard we've been brought into this family because of God's love. For many, the world is a deeply scary place right now. All Saints Day is a reminder that the people of God have been through some stuff throughout history, and the gates of hell have not prevailed and will not prevail against it. It is God's love that brings us through. So may you remember who you are. May you remember your story, the story of God who is always faithful to his people, who hears our cry, the story of the God who defeated death by the cross. May you know you're never alone. You will be tempted to define yourself by other things. And in those times, hear the good news. Know him in the sacraments and be reminded by the saints around you, the world is being restored, the kingdom is here, and all things are being made new. Amen.